It seems that depression and anxiety are on the rise, especially with the COVID pandemic. That's true. What portions of the Bible can we point people to, and especially teens? It's a great question. Um, so I'm reading uh, a book on, I'm about to have a teenage daughter. Did I tell you this? Prayers requested, please. <laughs> so my goal for this year was to read five books on uh, being a dad to a teenager. And one of the books was about uh, anxiety in girls. And so I was just reading this like expert and everything uh, she had to say. And uh, she talked a lot, at least in girls, that with young women, there's often a lot of internalizing. There's a lot of pressure to be perfect. Um, many young women just want to, they want to be great at school and they want to be great um, at their jobs and they want to be great friends. And just like all of that pressure can internalize and make them anxious. Like I'm juggling a thousand different balls and I can't keep them in the air. Um, you know, so how do you have de depression? I mean, the, the chemical imbalance, what Bible passage will fix that? Um, I think there are passages that help, but I don't want to suggest like, here's the one passage to read tonight and pff, your depression is over. I mean, there's so many factors that contribute to that, that for a lot of us, you know, depression or being worried too quickly or looping thoughts or pride or envy, whatever it is, is going to be a battle and a situation to manage for our entire lives. Right? I wouldn't be honest with you if I said, if you just listen to this one sermon I preached, depression is gone. But I did preach a sermon on depression. <laughs> so go to the Taboo series. Uh, I preached a message called God's To-Do List for Depression. And uh, let me give you the 30-second summary of that. What God wants you to do to cure your depression is nothing. I should rephrase that. God's number one way to cure your depression is not you doing something. It's God doing something for you. It's not telling a depressed person, do this and do that, and if you just do these 10 things, it'll make your depression better. Like, no, God loves depressed people. Uh, Psalm 42 and 43 talk about God commanding and sending his love when, when we're just out of it and don't want to get out of bed. So I think one of the best things that we can say to each other, and especially to teens, is, is that God's love isn't based on how much you're rejoicing today. Like, God is close to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, verse 18. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. So does eating right and, you know, not being connected to too much screens and social media, sleeping, staying connected, being honest, exercising, do those things help? For sure. But at the top of my list of what I would say to a dear brother or sister in Christ or my own daughter is, you know God loves you, right? Yep, I know you're worrying again. And God still loves you. He loves worrying people. <laughs> and our Savior died for depressed people. So I don't have any simple answers, but I can say Psalm 42 and 43, God's unfailing love for those of us who are struggling with mental health is the greatest comfort I think we can give each other. What evidence can we offer someone who believes the Bible is fictional? Ooh, lots. Um, here's the best way to convince someone the Bible is the word of God. Challenge them to read it. Um, C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian from the 1900s, once said, <laughs> the best way to show people how fierce a lion is, is to open the cage. 
right? <laughs> this actually happened to uh, a good friend of mine. Um, I was a brand new pastor, like six months in, and we had this really, really complicated, messy situation at our church that was like an email fiasco, replies, replies, replies. Like, I used to get anxious just opening my email. It was such a mess. I had no clue what I was doing my first six months. And this woman came up to me who's, uh, uh, whose daughters were in our preschool, and she said, I don't know, I'm not a Christian, I don't know what you believe, but you need to change because it's wrong. And, uh, you know, I replied to her and I said, hey, um, I totally get why this is confusing to you if, if you're not a Christian person. Like, here's why I love the Bible. Here's why I try to follow it because I know all the stuff that I mess up and I see how Jesus saved me and so I trust him and I trust the book that Jesus trusted. And um, she did not reply. Until 18 months later, <laughs> email shows up, R-E dot dot, my email subject line. <laughs> and uh, someone in her life had just died and she had no answer for death. And so I met with her and she would later say, because I was so transparent about my own like messiness and sins, that she was willing to give it a chance. And I said, hey, I'd love for you to read the Bible. Let me know what you think of it. And so we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs, Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then we got to Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. We got to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I think it was around John, if my memory is right. And she became a Christian. Um, faith comes from hearing the message. So whatever we can do to like bring people to church before they even believe church is a good thing. Share Bible passages before someone is a Christian and the Holy Spirit, like a lion out of a cage, will do things that you can't. Now, if your friend or family member says, like, yeah, no, I don't want to hear some myths and fairy tales. I don't want to hear your Bible passages. I don't want to come to your church. Like, what do you do then? Um, my shortest answer would be, have them read with you Isaiah 53. Um, in Isaiah 53, the death and resurrection of Jesus is predicted with stunning accuracy 700 years before it happens. He'll be pierced. Like a prediction of his crucifixion. He'll be laid in a rich man's tomb, which actually happened, Joseph of Arimathea. He will see the light of life. He will rise from the dead. Like, <laughs> I, I would take them to Old Testament passages that predict things that happened historically and just ask them, how do you think that happened? How in the world did Isaiah know that? King David predicts the crucifixion of the Messiah before crucifixion was even invented. They've pierced my hands and feet. The psalm says. The Persians invented crucifixion around in the 700s BC. So I'd say to my buddy, how do you explain that? <laughs> my explanation is that God wrote the Bible and God knows all things. So how do you explain it? And just put a little pebble in someone's shoe. Yeah, how do I explain that? So that's my answer. Old Testament prophecies that came true. And man, open that cage and let the Holy Spirit do what only he can do. Uh, why does Jesus' blood and death save us from hell? Why such suffering to save us? And how does this allow us to have a relationship with God? 
Um, the short answer is, all right, let's uh, pretend for a second that I'm God and that the you know, sinner is here and the person they've sinned against is over here. And I'm the judge. And uh, this person says, oh, sorry. Sorry for my anger. Sorry for my alcoholism. And I say, okay, cool. Go in peace. What is this person going to do? What? Do you know what they said to me? Do you know how complicated they made my You're just going to let them go? Do you not? Like, I'm a human, and I take that sin seriously. Do you not take sin seriously? So the Bible's answer, how can God take sin seriously and yet forgive sinners, is the cross of Jesus. Romans chapter 3 is the best thorough description and answer to this issue. So Romans 3, let me get there real quick. Um, the Apostle Paul is talking about how all people have sinned and it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus that God can justify us and be just himself. So verse 25 of Romans 3 said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. He did this, he let Jesus shed his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness, so to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So it is only the cross of Jesus where God can say, I take sin so seriously. When you were hurt, I was even angrier about that than you were. And the, my son on a cross being tortured and bleeding without me, that's the proof. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus and have faith in him, my anger has gone away. I smile upon you in faith. I give you my blessing and you get to go in peace. So how does it allow us to have a relationship with God? Only the gruesome death of Jesus on a cross is a way to take away the gruesome, disturbing sins that we've committed in our life. They're gone. We're cleansed. God takes sin seriously and we end up saved. In Numbers 15, God ordered a man to be stoned to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. That's true. What exactly does keeping the Sabbath day holy mean for me? I don't do chores on Sunday, but my husband does. It's an ongoing debate in our family. Hmm. What should you do to your husband? Stone him. <laughs> Next. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Ah, the Sabbath day. Okay, um, here's my crash course teaching on the Sabbath. Um, God created this world, and the Bible says in Genesis, I think 2 verse 1, 2 verse 2, on the seventh day he rested. Then if you read into the second book of the Bible, God's children end up as slaves in Egypt where they cannot rest. Pharaoh and their slave owners whip their backs and say, you don't get a day off, you're our slaves, we'll work you until you're dead. And they did, but God saved them. And after he saved them, he brought them to Mount Sinai and he gave the Ten Commandments. And uh, on the list of Ten Commandments was, remember the Sabbath day, remember the day of rest. And if you'd read Exodus 20 and I think Deuteronomy chapter 5, you would find God giving two reasons for that. He, he says, I want you to rest. I don't want you to go to work because I want you to remember that I made you and that I saved you. You have a creator and you have a savior. And so that story in the Old Testament, <laughs> you read it and it's terrifying. Like some guy's literally going to do some more work, picking up sticks, boom, and they kill him because he's broken the Sabbath day. 
Really what's happening, if you know the storyline of the Bible, is that he is saying, God didn't make me. God didn't save me. I'm going to do my thing. Which was the worst thing in the world that you could say to the God who made you and saved you. So, what does that mean for you today? Should we find all of our coworkers who are working on Saturday, by the way, is the Sabbath, not Sunday, seventh day of the week? Should we hurt them, stone them, <laughs> chastise them? Um, the answer is no, and here's why. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 16 says, we shouldn't judge each other by what we eat or drink or in regards to a Sabbath day. Um, so the New Testament, just like it says, we don't have to worry about like the rules for food in the Old Testament or animal sacrifices or we all don't have to travel to Jerusalem a couple of times a year to worship at the temple. Like there were some Old Testament things that were just for the Old Testament because Jesus is the better picture. So do you have to take Saturday off to rest? The Bible's answer is no. But you can find all the rest your soul needs in Jesus Christ. You don't have to work. You don't have to earn. You don't have to strive. He is your rest. Uh, the book of Hebrews chapters, I think, 3 and 4 talk about the true Sabbath rest for our soul. Um, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. So, if your husband's doing chores on Sunday, that's not even the Sabbath day, so he's good. <laughs> and if he starts mowing the lawn on Saturday, that's okay. Colossians 2, don't judge anyone by that. Find your rest in Jesus. Is there wisdom in us not working 80 hours a week? To remember that God made us and we just need, you know, downtime, relaxation, friendships, relationships, time in church, for sure. But that's a wisdom. It's not a commanded issue most of the time. I've heard conflicting talk about how we are to pray to God. Are we supposed to pray boldly or humbly or both at the same time? Can you please explain how we are to pray? Yeah. Um, you know, prayer, when you think of it, it's, it's kind of a funny thing. <laughs> I've had people like, you know, we fold our hands now and we close our eyes and our minds are going in a thousand directions. What do you supposed to do and how do you talk to God and he doesn't talk back and how exactly does all that work? So I love this question. I think the two words that this person uses, boldly and humbly, are kind of the, the perfect, you remember a Venn diagram from your school years? You know, here's the bold circle and here's the humble circle and there's like the spot where they overlap. Boldly and humbly is a great recipe to pray to God. Um, here's where the humbly comes in. No offense. You don't know nothing. <laughs> and neither do I. I mean, when I ask God, could I get this job? And would the weather work out? And would this all work in my life? I, I know nothing about tomorrow and neither do you. And so when we pray humbly, we, we say things like, God, you know everything. God, you can see the future. God, you, you created all things and you love me more than I'll ever know. And so I'm going to pray that your will would be done and your kingdom would come Right? Jesus taught us in what Matthew chapter 6 to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. If it is your will, Heavenly Father. And so you don't go like demanding like God has to do what you want because we have to come humbly. What do we know? And yet I love that first part, boldly. If you're taking notes or Bible passages, uh, write down Hebrews chapter 4 because Hebrews 4 has these amazing words. Uh, verse 16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with 
confidence. Let's approach the throne. Like, let's approach the king with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The Bible teaches that if, if Jesus forgave you of all of your sins and he turned God from some distant king and lord into your perfect loving father in heaven, then you can be as bold as a three-year-old is on her daddy's lap. Right? My kids ask me for the world. All right, daddy, can we get this? Daddy, can we buy that? Daddy, can we do this? Because they know that I love them, so they come with boldness. And so I want you to pray the same way. So here's an example. Um, Dear God, um, we want 2021 to be amazing. But what do we know? We sometimes think that an easy year would be a better year, but sometimes you grow us through the hard stuff. And you have to strip things out of our hands for us to seek you with our whole heart, something we never would have done if all the days were good. And so God, grow us in the year to come. I know that you want to. You promised it in your word. So whatever it takes, God, we submit to your ways and know that you will always work for our eternal good. We pray this confidently as your forgiven children. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. Pastor Mike here with Time of Grace. We hope that you love this podcast and that it helps you grow in your faith and get closer to Jesus. And we would love more and more people to have that experience too, which is why I want to ask you today to leave a review of this podcast. With just a few moments of your time, you can help us spread the word to more people who can meet more and more of Jesus.